Yep, our next speaker is Professor Carol Hillenbrand. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yes, most of us know you. You were for years you were professor of Islamic history at Edinburgh University. Yes. And now you are still teaching at uh, St Andrews University. So yes, I got an offer I couldn't refuse. Yes, so you are, you are still in. Cloudy Scotland. Yes. Occasionally visit us here. It, it's warmer itself. there than here. Yes, I can assure you. <laughs> and uh, you're going to talk to us about Al Biruni as a source for Islamic history. Yes. Yes. Biruni has long been recognised as an exceptionally gifted polymath. Can you hear me at the back? Good. Otherwise, I'll stand up. A man of great versatility learned in many branches of science, as well as in chronology, ethnography, and geography. He was also steeped in knowledge of Islam, the Quran and the Hadith, whilst able to write with authority on other faiths, especially those of India. There has, however, been little scholarly discussion of his interest in Islamic history. This paper will attempt to delve into this topic, insofar as the extant ev evidence will allow me. There are three parts to the paper. Firstly, a discussion of Biruni's views on history and how scholars who've specialised in Biruni's studies in the past see him as a writer of history. Secondly, an analysis of an extant extract of Biruni's historical work entitled Kitab Musamara fi Akbar Khwarazm, the book of evening table talk in the accounts of Khwarazm, as transmitted in the Tarihi Mas'udi of Behaqi. And thirdly, Biruni and Islamic Heilsgeschichte, Salvation History. So, first, a discussion of Biruni's views on history and how scholars who've specialised in Biruni studies in the past, see him as a historian. Well, what is historiography? Biruni himself extols the virtue of impartiality in writing history, and he says in the chronology, historians must be free from all kinds of prejudices which are liable to make people blind to the truth. In the extant excerpt from the Musamara, Biruni says, history must be governed by rationality and credibility, and it should reject the fabulous and the foolish. Turning now to historians, of which there are very many who've written about Biruni, of course, Marshall Hodgson praises Biruni's sense of historical sequence. That's a quote. M.S. Khan writing about Biruni's masterpiece, the Kitab Fitakhik Malil Hind, commends Biruni for not covering tiresome stories of wars and battles, invasions and conquest in chronological order. Boileau says of Biruni that he was both a historian and a chronologist and an impartial observer of customs and creeds. Well, so far then, so good. But I must admit that none of this gets us very far. 
So let me now turn to part two, my analysis of an extant extract of Biruni's historical work entitled Kitab Musamara Fi Akbar Khwarazm, The Book of Evening Table Talk, as transmitted in the Tarihi Mas'udi of Behaqi. It's fortunate that we still have access to one surviving piece of conventional historiography written by Biruni, namely an extract covering at least the years 382 Hijri, 992 CE, to 408 Hijri, 1017 CE. This is from his lost history of his homeland, as I've mentioned, entitled Kitab Musamara, etc. This extract, translated from the original Arabic into Persian, is found in the final part, Book 10, of Behaqi's history, Tarihi Mas'udi. The Biruni extract covers some of the events concerning the downfall of the last Ma'munid Khwarazm Shah, Abu abbas and the conquest of Khwarazm by Mahmud of Ghazna in 408-1017. Mahmud then put a slave commander of his, Altuntash, in charge of Khwarazm, giving him the title of Khwarazm Shah. Before reproducing the lengthy section taken from Biruni's work, Behaqi expresses his confidence in the reliability of this text as a historical source. I quote, Biruni would never indulge in exaggeration, and I have given this lengthy passage from Biruni's book so that it may be firmly established how scrupulous I have been in writing this history. One may conclude from this remark that Behaqi quoted Biruni to burnish his own reputation by the comparison. Biruni's text recounts his own personal experiences of working as the confidential advisor to the last Ma'munid Khwarazm Shah. His account is lively, even racy at times. It reads like a personal memoir, which divulges hitherto confidential information. It relates the details of intrigues, devious plotting, and convoluted information involving Abu Abbas's dealings with Mahmoud of Ghazna, and also at times with the neighboring Karakhanid Turkish dynasty. Biruni is at the heart of these events, giving counsels to the Khwarazm Shah and on occasions acting as his envoy. He is, however, dealing with a formidable, indeed terrifying opponent, Mahmoud of Ghazna, whose ultimate triumph is inevitable. The first section of the narrative concerns the Khwarazm Shah Abu Abbas, whom Biruni describes as learned as well as enterprising and capable and steadfast in whatever he did. He praises his master above all for not uttering insults or indulging in tittle-tattle. Biruni then adds, I, Urehan, who spent seven years in his service, 
never heard any abusive language from him. Biruni mentions an agreement established between Abul Abbas and Mahmoud of Ghazna involving a Ghaznavid princess joining the harem of Abul Abbas. A wine drinking session then follows and it's described in detail. When the third drink came, Abul Abbas stood up, I quote, as an act of respect to Mahmoud and then sat down again. He then made all the assembled gathering, one by one, stand up, kiss the ground and sit down again. So desirous was Abul Abbas of keeping in favour with Mahmoud of Ghazna that when the Sunni Abbasid Caliph al-Qadir sent him gifts, a robe, a charter of investiture, a standard and honorific titles, he felt it necessary to conceal these honours from Mahmoud in order not to alienate him. So he sent Biruni to meet with due ceremony the Caliph's envoy in secret in the middle of the desert. And when Biruni brought back the gifts to his master, Abul Abbas gave orders that they should be hidden away. There then follow humorous anecdotes, rather in the same vein as those one finds in the memoirs of Osama bin Munqid in 12th century Syria. Biruni relates that Abul Abbas was drinking wine one day and listening to stringed instruments in the company of Biruni himself and another person called Sakhri. Sakhri was scholarly and cultured, but, I quote, extremely rude in his manners. Sakhri was about to drink the cup of wine in his hand when the horses, tethered in the palace for immediate usage, made a lot of noise, and one of them farted loudly. When Abul Abbas then shouted out a toast in Arabic, in the drinker's moustache, a punning toast, fi sharib a sharib, in Arabic, Sakhri threw down his cup, boorishly and impolitely. Biruni writes that he was afraid his master would command that Sakhri be immediately beheaded. Instead, he laughed the incident off, behaving with forbearance and nobility of character. This story is revealing, apart from the ceremony it, it describes, as it demonstrates the capricious cruelty of monarchs such as Khwarezm Shah. The next section of Biruni's narrative, in the version of Behaqi, concerns the demise of the Mahmoud dynasty of Khwarezm, and rule in Khwarezm being passed to Mahmoud's military commander, Al-Tuntash, here, there are complex machinations and negotiations which would lead ultimately to the downfall of Abul Abbas. When Mahmoud decides to forge an alliance with the Karahanids and sends officers to conduct the negotiations, he also asks Abul Abbas to send an envoy to witness these proceedings. The latter refuses categorically to do so. This fateful decision arouses a feeling of, of severity in Mahmoud's heart. Indeed, Biruni describes him as having a suspicious nature. 
Mahmoud's vizier, Maimandi, suggests a plan couched in high epistolary prose to reassure Mahmoud, in which Abul Abbas should name Mahmoud in the khutbah in Khurasan. Biruni himself advises his master not to proceed, but he goes ahead, appointing an evil and avaricious scoundrel, Yaqub Jandi, to go to Ghazna. Mahmud and his vizier did not take this man seriously, so Yaqub wrote a long letter to Abul Abbas in the Khwarazmian language, reviling Mahmud and stirring up trouble. Biruni adds that when three years later Mahmud conquered Khwarazm, Yaqub's document came into his possession and he had it translated. Mahmud was so angry with its contents that he had Yaqub gibbeted and stoned to death. Biruni then provides words of wisdom to his reader, saying that one should be very careful in what one writes. Indeed. Abul Abbas spent sleepless nights duly dreading Mahmud's retribution and he decided to make the khutbah in Mahmud's name. Khwarazmian military and civil leaders were strongly against this idea but after Biruni had spoken to, to them they gave in. As he writes, he Biruni, I managed to soften them up and win over their most influential leaders with promises of silver and gold until they consented. So, finally, Abul Abbas agreed to make the khutbah mentioning Mahmud in the towns of Khwarazm except Karth and Gurganj and to send 80,000 dinars, 3,000 troops and some leading dignitaries to settle the matter with Mahmud. The rest, as they say, is history. This extract from Biruni's History of Khwarazm is a very detailed and polished narrative written by an insider, a major, if not the major, player in the unfolding drama which culminates in Mahmud of Ghazna's takeover of Khwarazm. Precise developments are mentioned. Biruni can admit sometimes that his advice, his advice is not always accepted by the Khwarazm Shah for whom he's working. Tiring over the whole narrative is Mahmoud of Ghazna. Biruni mentions no dates for the events which he relates. His narrative is much more in the form of personal memoirs than of a historical chronicle. The evidence, often couched in flowery prose, is detailed and precise. The work is focused entirely on the history of Khwarazm, on the extreme periphery of the Muslim world at a time when it was on the very verge of falling under Turkish rule. Well, this excerpt from Biruni's Lost History adds yet another set of skills to this exceptionally gifted polymath. The extract highlights his sophisticated gifts without too much attempt at modesty, as a diplomat, courtier, and advisor to the ruler. Indeed, Voilo writes that during his seven years working for the Khwarazm Shah, Biruni was entrusted with delicate political mi missions. B 
because of his gold and silver tongue. So, in addition to being the finest and most respectable intellectual of his age, B. Rooney was a polished courtier with sensitive social antennae. He was no reclusive individual, or in modern parlance, he was no medieval geek wearing an anorak. It was thus that Biruni also survived later on, for 20 years, in the proximity of a truly frightening despot, Mahmoud of Ghazna, a figure who obviously fascinated Biruni and dominated the latter part of his life. It's a great pity that so much of Biruni's oeuvre has not survived. According to Bruce Lawrence, anyway, there is now only some 15% of it. In particular, it would be fascinating to have access to a lost work of Biruni, apparently entitled Tariq Ayam Sultan Mahmud wa Akbar Abihi, The History of the Days of Sultan Mahmud and Information About His Father. Well, I now turn to an important question arising from this extract preserved in Persian by Behaki. Did Behaki himself actually translate Biruni's text from Arabic into Persian? It's well known that Biruni opted to compose his books in Arabic and that he looked down on officials and scholars who were not skilled in Arabic and chose to write in Persian. Indeed, his contemptuous comment in the Kitab Asedana that Persian is no use except for tales of kings and nighttime storytelling is well known. Nevertheless, already in the 10th century, there were a number of Arabic works translated into Persian. Well, what of the final section of the Tarihi Mas'udi of Behaki, which is called the, the Zikri Khwarazm, which purports, anyway, to be a translation of part of Biruni's lost work? Behaki certainly did on occasion include in his tarikh other extended first-person narratives from informants whom he deemed to be trustworthy. When he does that, Behaki gives the impression that he is indeed using a translation of the actual words of his sources. But to what extent does he reshape and adapt them? In the case of this section, positioned at the very end of his long book, Behaki recognises that this has been his principal source for the events culminating in the fall of the Mahmoudids in 408-1017 and the conquest of Khwarazm by Mahmoud of Ghazna. He writes as follows, Vapish as in mudate diraz ketabididam Behati ustade burehan, ba umar dibud da adabu handasa o falsafa da asreu chunu dige dige nabud. A long time before this, Behahim writes, I saw a book in the writing of the master Abu Rehan. He was a man who, in matters of culture, ge geometry, and philosophy, had no equal in his age. We may assume 
that the original text, like almost all of Biruni's works, was written in Arabic. What is much less certain is whether or not Behaki himself translated the Arabic into Persian. Although Behaki allegedly quotes Biruni at length in the first person as an eyewitness of the events related, it remains doubtful that Biruni would have written in Arabic in the style similar to the one used by Behaki in his version in Persian. Behaki actually admits that it's many years since he saw the book written in Arabic. What is most likely, I would argue, is that what Behaki has produced in his work is a paraphrase of Biruni's Arabic original with all its juicy details intact, but written in Behaki's usual high-flown style. It's interesting to compare Biruni's account of the last period of Mahmoud's rule in Khwarazm with that of Gardizi. In his Zain al-Akhba, Gardizi writes a history of the rulers of Khorasan and the Mashriq until his own time. He must have been linked with early Ghaznavid bureaucracy since he claims to have witnessed a number of the military activities of his masters. Gardizi also mentions that he heard information from Biruni directly. Minoski writes that the material for Gardizi's chronological tables came directly from Biruni. Well, so much for similarities between the two. Unlike Biruni, Gardizi wrote in New Persian, though he admits that he has heard information from Biruni. Moreover, Gardizi's narrative of the Ghaznavid affairs in the East is written in a sober way. He says that he's been an eyewitness to many events and his history is generally concise and carefully selective. However, Gardizi does feel it necessary to indulge in eulogies of the Ghaznavid sultans, Mahmud and his son Mas'ud, whom he calls the martyr sultan. And he portrays Mahmud as a great mujahid, both at home and on his campaigns into northern India. As in the Biruni extract, Gardizi too will take time occasionally to describe in detail a grand event at court, this time the Ghaznavid court, such as the meeting between Mahmud and the Karahanid ruler Yusuf Qadir Khan in the year 416-1025. But usually, Gardizi's chronicle is not in the genre of chatty court memoirs on the model of Biruni's text, as recorded by Behaqi. Many of the episodes during the last years of Mahmoud rule in Khwarazm, recorded by Biruni in Behaqi's Persian translation, are also f- to be found in Gardizi's account. The marriage of Abu Abbas to Mahmoud of Ghazna's sister in 406, 10 of, 1015 to 16, the routing of the Khwarazmian troops by Mahmoud's army the following year, the seizing of Shahri Khwarazm, Kath, and the appointment of his chief Hajib, Al-Suntaj, as governor of Khwarazm. Gadizi 
praises Al-Suntash for being fully obedient and faithful to Mahmud and his family, and he goes on to describe in triumphantly laudatory tones a military parade during a celebratory visit by Al-Tuntash to Mahmud in 415, 1024. He writes, So much clamor and blowing of trumpets and beating of drums took place that the onlookers were so terrified that their gallbladders almost split. Thus, in Gadizi's account, we see a contrasting and favorable picture of Mahmud's conquest of Khwarazm from the perspective of the invading Turks rather than the anguish of the Khwarazmians, including Biruni. And just in passing, let me also mention the Kitabi Yamini of Al-Utbi, another account of the last phase of Khwarazmian rule in Khwarazm. This also grovels in praise of Mahmud of Ghazna. Indeed, Zakau condemns it as the lucubrations of bombastic Utbi. Well, I now turn to the third part of my paper, which is what I've called Biruni's Heilsgeschichte, Salvation History. And this needs me to turn to the chronology, and in particular, as has been mentioned already, the festivals of the Muslims. I'm not ashamed to call salvation history history. I think it's an important dimension of any tradition, hence my mentioning this instead of talking about battles and so on, as um, mentioned earlier. In this section of the chronology, Biruni is definitely writing salvation history. Its te his text is deeply rooted in Islam, its basic tenets, doctrines, and rituals. Here he lists what he views as unassailably fixed dates and events in the Islamic religious calendar. Muslim months are discussed in due sequence and memorable dates within each month are commented on, frequently with only a single phrase or short sentence. For example, Biruni's entry for the 16th day of the month of Muharram reads, Jerusalem was made the Qibla of the Muslims, and that's it. But this habit of writing short diary sentences in a single sentence is interrupted on occasion to include certain important longer narratives. And it's here that Biruni's text sheds light on how he sees core aspects of Islamic salvation history from the time of the Prophet until the reign of the Abbasid Caliph al-Ma'mun, 813-33. And in his longer extracts, Biruni's own religious persuasion emerges loud and clear. In my preparation for this paper, I made a statistical reckoning of the number of times specific personalities are mentioned in this section on the Muslim festivals. This sheds interesting light on Biruni's choice of the key events in the years 1 to 61 A.H., 
622 to 680 CE. Not surprisingly, pride of place goes to the Prophet Muhammad, who is accorded 30% of all Biruni's references to people. At the other end of the statistical spectrum, however, it's noteworthy that during the whole of the calendar year, I know some months are missing, um, but nevertheless, key months are there. During the whole of the calendar year, as I have seen it in, in, in Zacho, in, in his um, uh, Arabic text, and also um, indeed in, in Azkais, the four rightly guided caliphs of Sunni Islam of, of those four, the first three, Abu Bakr, Omar, and Uthman, despite their seminal roles in early Islamic history, are each mentioned only once. This constitutes 3% of the references to people in this section. Moreover, the violent deaths of Uthman on the 17th of Dhul Hijjah and of Umar on the 25th of Dhul Hijjah are recorded laconically in one sentence each. Above all, it's revealing that the fourth caliph, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who is of course the first caliph of the Shiites, and his son Al Hussein are together given quite a special prominence with 26% of all the references to people in this section. Stories about them are given lengthy coverage in the accounts covering three months of the Islamic year, Muharram, Safa and Dhul Hijjah. The tone of these entries is reverential and passionate. Chronologically, the first event which merits a longer entry from Biruni is when the Prophet Muhammad stopped at Ghadir Rum on the 18th of Dhul Hijjah, 10 AH, the 15th of March, 632. This is the sacred moment when Muhammad and his followers were returning to Medina from the farewell pilgrimage. He stopped at Ghadirum and ordered that camel saddles should be collected and made into a platform. From there, Muhammad spoke to his supporters, telling them to give their loyalty to his cousin and son-in-law, Ali ibn Abi Talib, and he called upon God to support the friends of Ali and to wreak vengeance upon the enemies of Ali. Here, Biruni quotes the famous words of Muhammad as recorded in the Sirah, the um, official canonical biography of Muhammad by Ibn Ishaq. This event, the investiture of Ali, is of course for Shiites a clear affirmation of the legitimate claims of Ali and his sons as successors of the Prophet. Biruni also writes a long narrative for the 10th day of Muharram, Ashura. He quotes a hadith of the Prophet calling this day great and blessed. And he then records that the people celebrated it until there occurred on that day the murder of the Prophet's grandson, Al-Hussein, and the members or some members of the Prophet of God's family. It's worth quoting here Biruni's reaction to this terrible event and noting the highly emotional tone in it. 
I quote, Al-Hussein and his followers were treated in such a way as never in the whole world the worst criminals have been treated. They were killed by hunger and thirst, through the sword, they were burned and their heads roasted and horses were made to trample over their bodies. Whether he wrote it or whether he quoted it, it's there. Predictably, this tragic death is then followed by a tirade against the wicked ruling Umayyad family who are enjoying themselves dressed in new clothes, adorning themselves, painting their eyes with coal, giving feasts and parties, a practice which Biruni says still continued after the downfall of the Umayyad dynasty. He points out that thereafter the Shiites lament and weep in public on this day in Baghdad and other places for the death of the chief of martyrs, Sayyid al-Shuhada, and they go on pilgrimage to the blessed tomb of al-Hussein in Karbala. Biruni's narrative about al-Hussein's death ends on a high note with al-Hussein's cousin, the daughter of Aqil bin Abi Talib, pronouncing in Medina the following powerfully eloquent poetic lines. Mada takuluna in qala anabilakum, mada fa'altum wa antum akhirul ummam bi itrafi wa bi akhli anda muftakadi nisfun asara wa nisfun duriju bi dam. What would you say? If the Prophet said to you, what have you done, you who are the last of the communities with my close relations and my family, if I asked you about them, half of them are prisoners and half are smeared with blood. The whole excerpt for the 10th day of Muharram covers 14 lines of the Arabic text and 31 lines of Zakhal's translation, which I don't always like. He, he, he writes, half are, are tinged with blood. Well, I mean, there was no, no tinging about it, though absolutely covered in it. And that's why I changed the translation to smeared. Thus, Biruni's account of al-Hussein's death is given pole position in his text with a lengthy and powerful narrative in both poetry and prose. More emotional text awaits the reader, or should I say the listener, in the entry for the first day of Safa, which is the anniversary of the day when the head of al-Hussein arrived in Damascus. The instigator of al-Hussein's death, the second Umayyad <coughs> Caliph, the arch-villain Yazid bin Muawiyah, whose army mowed down al-Hussein and his family, takes revenge for the Prophet's victory over the Meccans at the Battle of Badr. Yazid behaves with shockingly sacrilegious brutality. As Biruni relates, Yazid placed the head in front of him and with a stick he struck out the four front teeth whilst reciting some triumphal poetic lines, ending with the words, We have tried to take vengeance on him for Badr and we have got it. The story of Al-Hussein ends on the 20th of Safa, where Biruni records that the head of al-Hussein was joined again to his body 
and it was buried with his body. Well, it's no new discovery that Biruni has been viewed by many as having Shiite sympathies. But in the chronography, these sympathies leap out of the page. They cause Biruni to write in long paragraphs containing speeches and poetry, rather than in his usual short neutral sentences of the chronography. What a contrast there is between the curt curt way in which the third caliph Uthman's murder is recorded on 17th of Dhul Hijjah. Quote, Uthman ibn Affan, the caliph, was killed. Just one day before the anniversary of Ghadirum, with its lengthy narrative, which I've already mentioned. It's a pity that Biruni doesn't cite his sources for the information he's provided in his coverage of the important anniversaries in each of the months of the Muslim calendar. One can find um, obvious uh, um, quotes, but not all. Now I turn to the eras of the pseudo-prophets, al-Mutanabiyun, In this well-known section of the chronography, Biruni provides narratives about a number of famous and lesser-known figures in early Islamic times who have appeared as religious luminaries preaching heterodox ideas and dangerous doctrines. Within the time frame of early Islamic history, Biruni selects Musaylima, Bahafirid, Al-Muqadda, Al-Hallaj and Ibn Abi Zakariya. Once again, there are differences in length in these narratives. Some are mere snippets, others extensive. I will just discuss two of these figures, Musaylima and Al-Hallaj. What has survived of the history of Musaylima, often known as Al-Kadhab, the inveterate liar, is predictably very hostile, and Biruni's approach is similar. After all, Musaylima was one of the other monotheistic Arab preachers who dared to challenge what later generations of Muslims came to see as the unique revelation of the Quran to Muhammad during the Prophet's own lifetime. Biruni's passage, quoted verbatim from the the canonical biography of Ibn Ishaq begins with two envoys from Musaylima visiting Muhammad with a message from Musaylima inviting him to share half the earth and saying, God has made me partake with you in the rule. And Muhammad responds to the envoys, if it was not the custom not to kill messengers, I would behead both of you. He then makes the following solemn solemn statement to them. From Muhammad, the prophet of God, to Musaylima, the liar. Greeting to those who follow the right guidance. The earth belongs to God. He gives it as an inheritance to whomsoever of his servants he pleases. And the end will be in favor of the pious. Musaylima is depicted by Biruni as a skilled but fraudulent magician. I quote, The people of Yamama let themselves be deluded by him by such tricks as introducing an egg 
that had been soaked in vinegar into a glass bottle. By fitting together the wings of birds, which he had previously cut off, by means of similar feathers, and by such like humbug and swindle. Biruni ridicules Musaylam's followers for their pre-Islamic beliefs when they worshipped an idol called Hais, and two satirical poems about this idol then follow. Now I turn to Al-Halaj. In sharp distinction to his entry on Musaylima, Biruni writes at much greater length about Al-Halaj. Probably the most famous, or in Biruni's eyes the most notorious, of the medieval Sufis. His account of Al-Halaj is highly tendentious and vituperative. There's little here of the traditional picture of him preserved in later medieval Sufi tradition, <coughs> such as in the work of Hujwiri. And the great French Orientalist Louis Massignon would turn in his grave to read what Biruni says. As is usually the case, Biruni does not cite his sources, and his biographical information here is extremely incomplete. According to Biruni's report, Al-Halaj was seized after preaching the coming of the Mahdi and taken, by whom it is not clear, to Baghdad. As usual, no date is given, and he was there paraded through the streets. He was then put in prison, but he contrived to get out of it again, as uh, Biruni writes it. No chronology here either. As well as calling Al-Halaj a juggler and an artful sort of person, that's a topos used for other heterodox figures in medieval Islam, Biruni writes a garbled version of Al-Halaj's preaching, the doctrine of incarnationism, hulul. And he mentions Al-Halaj's famous controversial statement, Anna al-Haq, I am the truth or I am God, which he allegedly uttered when filled with mystical intoxication. Biruni simply says of Al-Halaj at this point, he preached that the Holy Ghost was dwelling in him and he called himself God. There's no hint here of the importance of the career and death of Al-Halaj as a turning point in the history of Sufism. Perhaps it's too early. No mention is given of Al-Halaj's years of journeying in the East, his preaching to popular audiences, his three pilgrimages to Mecca, or the build-up to his death amidst political turmoil in caliphal and scholarly circles in Baghdad. Unusually, Biruni gives a date for Al-Halaj's execution, but it's the wrong one. 301 9.13. This is not the date given in the sources, which normally say 309.9.22. But, and you can look at the picture of this terrible event in the Edinburgh manuscript of, of um, Al-Halaj's uh, execution, Biruni mentions the usual details recorded 
a thousand lashes, his hands and feet cut off, his beheading, his body burned, and his ashes thrown into the Tigris. Biruni adds this, I quote, During the whole execution, he did not utter a syllable, nor distort his face or move his lips. Well, it's possible that in this hostile portrayal of Al-Halaj, Biruni had been influenced by Kusheri, who died in 465, 1074, if the work had been written by this, by, in the time of, um, Bir, uh, of Biruni. Um, 1074 is a little bit late, but I'm not sure the actual date of Kusheri writing the work. Anyway, Kusheri's biographical dictionary omits Al-Halaj altogether, but he begins with a polemical introduction condemning the doctrine of Hulul, incarnationism. And Hujwiri, another almost contemporary of Biruni, died 1072, began the process of rehabilitating Al-Halaj. But it would seem that in the case of Al-Halaj, Biruni, because of his hardened negative view of this Sufi, has departed from his usual alleged meticulous attention to historiographical principles of checking sources and their accuracy. The rest of the entry in Al-Halaj's name is not about him at all. It discusses instead the concept of the Mahdi and how it manifested itself after Al-Halaj had died in the Eastern Islamic world. The account (coughs) then moves briefly to the extremist Shiite sect, the Carmathians, and their terrible behavior in Mecca in the year 318, 930, where they stole the black stone away from the Kaaba shrine, eight years after the true date of Al-Halaj's death. (coughs) Biruni's linking of Al-Halaj with the Carmathians inside his biography of Al-Halaj is another sign of his wish to discredit him. And it's also anachronistic. So I've got three concluding comments. Firstly, as I mentioned briefly at the beginning, as a a gifted scientist, B. Rooney emphasised the need for scrupulous regard for respectable sources and, above all, for lack of partiality in giving evidence. (coughs) Secondly, in the extract from his history of Khwarezm, he's shown to be a lively and witty raconteur, a brilliant political operator, and a shrewd survivor in violent times. As Francois mentioned, he was um, taken as war booty of Drezna, where he managed to survive for another 20 years. However, and thirdly, when Biruni writes salvation history, all neutrality disappears in favour of pleading a most passionate case for Shiite Islam. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Carol. I'm sure there are some questions, remarks. Thank you.
Oh dear, I think everybody wants tea. <laughs> I think there is, um, there is a very striking difference between his um, attitude towards Islamic history in the chronology and then later in the Kanun. Yes. Yeah, you can see that, I mean, what's very obvious is in the table, the list of the caliphs. In the chronology he has, if I remember this correctly, he has the four orthodox caliphs as such. Then he has the Umara, yeah? Yeah. No, sorry, the Muluk, yeah? Mm. Of the Umayyads. So the Umayyads are mere kings, they're not caliphs. And then he has the Abbasids as caliphs, again. Which is, um, I think, pretty much a, a standard Mu'tazili position yes. in that period. Whereas in the uh, in the Kanun, they're all listed as caliphs. Mm. Which is, of course, just the thing of... You mean in the um, in chronography? The Yes. yes, in the tables yeah. of the... Yeah. Of the, of the uh, well, that's a valid point. I didn't get to, get to read the yeah, comments. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a, a sort of, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, shall we say conformism rather than necessarily reflecting a change in, yes. in attitude, but it is, it is something that's different. Yes. I was surprised at the amount of passion he puts mm. into the um, accounts of the, the Shiites. Asura, yes, the Asura, yes, yes. And um, it didn't seem to fit with his... Um, um, uh, alleged um, uh, impartiality, um, and also, as I've said, the fact that um, the other entries are just one-liners. Yes. You know, really important figures like Omar, the um, the second caliph, who was really um, the the creator, in a way, of, of the whole Islamic empire. I mean, empire. That, that chapter on the on Islamic fest festivals is definitely has a Shiite bias. Oh, I think so. Yes. 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 George, but the transition uh, from uh, the kanun or from the uh, chronology to the uh, kanun, I think, is uh, is fascinating, and uh, I find it clarifying to see all of these uh, Shi sympathies uh, in his work. Um, <coughs> really, uh, here again is the uh, uh, perhaps social history angle. Uh, uh, of course, Mahmoud uh, is. Uh, nominally a, a jihadi against uh, Hindus, but much of his efforts are directed toward Sindh and the Shis uh, there. Yeah. And it leads me to wonder uh, how his sympathies may have changed, either as he uh, matured and saw more of the world, or uh, that he became uh, affiliated with a different uh, patron and the political system. That's interesting. You mean you think he was a turncoat, a vicar of Bray? Well, he was. He was, uh, as you said, he was very uh, uh, adroit uh, yeah. politically. And when it came to um, uh, uh, his earlier work, which he's writing in his twenties, uh, uh, he may have uh, had a really fixed idea about uh, religion or uh, <coughs> salvation. Yeah. That, that uh, perhaps uh, changed after 15 some years at that point uh, with the uh, with the because uh, I believe there's also uh, uh, an indication, and I, I'm sorry, but I can't remember the text for this, uh, where he's criticizing Montesquieu's mm -hmm. and he's not uh, uh, content with uh, their uh, answers to some of the questions he's interested in. So one wonders if this 
so yeah. was something that changed uh, for him over time. I'd love to know what his um, his last work on on, on the um, activities of Mahmoud of Ghazna um, might have been. I mean, I don't know um, uh, what his stance would be because I I'm, I'm pretty convinced that he, he didn't he didn't like him at all, even if um, he um, was was a survivor and adapted to the situation. Um, and of course, I'd like to know um, what he he viewed as the activities, uh, I mean, not the customs of the Indians, of course, but um, how things were going within Mahmoud's army and all that kind of thing. We don't know, do we? Tell me I'm, I'm wrong, but I, I don't think we are. Um, we do. I, I can only think now of two comments, one that he makes complaining in, of him that the raids are scattering uh, mm. uh, uh, Indic intellects that might inform him more, uh, and uh, and this was a limitation on his work. And then I believe in his uh, mineralogy, uh, mm -hmm. he uh, discusses uh, Mahmoud's uh, paranoia about uh, money, yes. state budgets, yes. and his constant need to hunt for uh, new mines uh, as soon as they've uh, set up a camp. Um, that doesn't tell us much about his politics, but it was clear that uh, the moment Mahmoud became nervous about the, the uh, discussion on money, the Biruni retreated yeah. because he was aware that Mahmoud was uh, money hungry and a bit paranoid. Well, I was very interested at what, um, uh, if this is a correct picture from Behaki's account, um, allegedly from Biruni, what an, a polished and oily courtier he was, and um, how he managed to, um, uh, you know, pers persuade his, um, the Juarez Mishal to do certain things. Um, and it, I, I found it very amusing some of the things that he um, related there as well. Um, it reminded me a bit of Paul Johnson's um, memoirs of M MPs in Britain. I don't know whether you've read that, but but some of those stories that were very similar and it's a different image from uh, um, this uh, incredibly famous and perhaps not so brilliant after t the discussions today scientist 